walk-up music always gets me fired up. It's like I'm coming out of the, the tunnel. Well, a good morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Rankin. I help out from time to time when uh, Jeff or Dustin need a break, and it's my privilege to be with you this morning. I want to play a game this morning. Let's start with a game. We're going to do a memory association game. I'm going to say a word, and then you say in, in your head what comes to mind, okay? Peanut butter. See, some of you weren't listening because I said in your That's all right. That's fine. Uh, pajamas. How about church? <laughs> I have a burden this morning, and that's to try and convince you in our, in our few moments together that the most misunderstood word in church is church. That we have misused and misunderstood this word for so long that most of us, we don't really have any idea what we're doing here this morning. And I don't think this is a semantic quibble. I think that this has very real consequences on our everyday life with God. One of the privileges of being a pastor is that you get to be with people in their last moments on their, on their deathbeds. Some of you have been there. So you know if you've been there that you always lean in really closely, don't you? You want to you write down every, you want to hear every word. Every word's important because you feel that what you hear from the person you love will be so important. Last words are important. Take, for example, the last words of Leonardo da Vinci. His last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Da Vinci's last words. I mean, that is a tragic story. I and mean, that the, the, the great artist died thinking that he was a failure. And of course, that story keeps getting played out. Not good enough. Never good enough. Nothing will ever be good enough. We know last words are important. You know, Jesus' last words, when well, we have them on the best authority, recorded in the book of Acts, if you'll turn there. Our teaching will come from the book of Acts this morning, chapter 1. Jesus has been raised from the dead, appeared to his disciples and, and many others. They were understandably wondering what's next. And let's pick up the thread. This is Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. So when the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This text might be familiar to some of you, but I wonder if you've noticed that Jesus' last words, the last thing on his mind was the mission of the people who had gathered around him. Author Leslie Newbigin wrote, 
It is surely a fact of inexhaustible significance that what our Lord left behind was not a book, nor a creed, nor a system of thought, nor a rule of life, but a visible community. Jesus committed the entire work of salvation to that community, to people, community. And it's not only in Acts that Jesus' last words are about mission. You can find a similar emphasis in each of the Gospels. This is Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, verse 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24, verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached to all nations. And John 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. If you've been around church, sometimes you hear people talk about the Great Commission, but if you read closely, there's not one, but five Great Commissions. Evidently, Jesus did not want us to miss the point. And Acts is the only passage that records a reaction from the disciples. If you have your Bible open, look back at the end of verse 3. The end of verse 3, Jesus has been, quote, speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, that's the same thing he'd been talking about for years. Scholars tell us it was a central theme of his ministry. And yet here at the very end, after all that's happened, it's so clear the disciples still don't understand. Look at verse 6. Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, they still don't get it. They still think of Jesus' mission in terms of political power, in terms of what it will mean for them and their nation, and their standing. Please note, this is the raw material with which Jesus has to work. Slow to understand, self-serving, fallible people like me. Jesus cautions them in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. Timing's in God's hands. All you need to know, keep reading, Jesus says, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, we've just seen these guys are obtuse, and yet Jesus tells them they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Wait, what? What, what is the Holy Spirit? What? What does that mean? Jesus continues, and here are his last recorded words. His last recorded words, and you will be my witnesses. That's our primary identity as people who have gathered around Jesus. Our primary identity is not beneficiaries, though the gifts of God are inestimable, not servants, though the call of God is complete, but witnesses. And think with me, what, what do witnesses do? Do witnesses make things happen? What do witnesses do? We witness. A witness just talks about what he or she has experienced. I mean, any judge will tell you the last thing you want is for a witness to be creative. No, just tell me, just tell me what you experienced. In Jerusalem and in Judea, bloom where you're planted. In Samaria, wait, did he say Samaria? Those, those are our enemies, the Samaritans. Did he say Samaria and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Now, you've got to remember, most of these guys had never been beyond 25 miles of their home. They had no idea what ends of the earth could mean. All they heard was, and you will be given power to do this, the Holy Spirit, and you will be my 
witnesses. The Bible's full of humor if you know where to look for it. Verse 9 of Acts 1, I think, is one of the funniest scenes to imagine in Scripture. And when he had said these things, verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, let me give you a a, a dramatic reenactment of that moment. (laughs) It, It took two guys appearing in white robes saying, What are you looking at? Why are you staring into heaven? He's coming back. So you better get to work. You know, this scene reminds me of, uh, or this scene is sometimes ridiculed as some sort of uh, proof that uh, ancient peoples were naive, pre-Copernican, with the heavens up there. What most readers don't realize is that all the way back in the book of Exodus, do you know what a cloud represented? A cloud represented the presence of the glory of God. And throughout the Bible, do you know what the right hand of God represented? It represented the place of authority in the whole universe. So in verse 9, when, the, when Luke writes that a cloud enveloped Jesus and he ascends into heaven, his point is not a cosmological point. It is a theological point. Luke is saying, on this man, the glory of God, in whom all authority in heaven and on earth, and then his visible presence... gone. Verse 12 starts with these innocent sounding words, then they returned to Jerusalem. I wonder what that trip was like. What did he say? Holy Spirit, what are we going to do now without him? What now? And what did he say? What did he say? Did he say, go in my name and build majestic cathedrals and make sure there's good parking? Is that what he said? No, he says, you'll be my witnesses everywhere to the ends of the earth. Jesus' last words. May be familiar to you, but again, I want to ask, have you noticed his last, the last thing on our Lord's mind was mission? Because I think mention mention that word mission today, and, and various ideas come to mind. When you hear the word mission, you might think of a young couple from Indiana going to Prague. You might think of a dentist or a nurse going to Haiti or the Dominican Republic for a week. If you're of a skeptical bent, missions might connote something worrisome to you of a legacy of colonialism or oppression or even racism, and we must admit sometimes it's been that. Either way, for most of us, mission seems like a pursuit reserved for the dedicated, the most dedicated. A lot of churches don't talk much about missions. It seems ancillary, something to be added later. I mean, after the, pri- after the real work of the church has been tended to, churches that do speak of missions might have it as a separate department or a committee. The missions team, like a select unit. Now, I think something significant has happened here. Have you ever picked up a pair of binoculars and looked through the wrong end? Sure you have. How do things look? They look smaller and out of focus. What was once front, front and center has been moved to the background. Well, I believe such is the fate of mission in the modern American church. And with it, our entire conception of what we're doing here has been distorted, has gotten out of focus. Now, how has this happened? Well, I believe one of the main culprits is we, we have forgotten how to read the Bible. 
We've forgotten how to read the Bible if we've ever been told. I mean, you can read the Bible if you go to university as simply another religious text like the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, or you can read the Bible as a personal life instruction manual where you can turn to deal with your individual problems. But it's so much more than that. A, a more compelling and a much more accurate way to read the Bible on its own terms is to read the Bible as the, as the unfolding story of the mission of God to call a people to himself. That's one of the most important refrains in the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people so that all the world, indeed all creation, might know and be reconciled to this good and loving God. The Bible is the unfolding story and the thread of the story from Genesis to Revelation is the mission of God for the healing and wholeness of all nations and all creations. It's cosmic. God's mission began with the call to Adam and Eve to tend and cultivate the garden. It continued with Abraham in Genesis 12, where God called Abram, Go get thee up, in the old King James Version, and sent him out, promising to bless the world through his offspring. Then God called Moses, sent him to Egypt. That was Exodus 3. Then God called the nation of Israel to receive his blessing, Exodus 19, in order to send them out to send them out so that all the nations might know the character of Israel's God. Israel lost sight of their callings. The Lord called the prophets to call Israel back to their vocation. It is too small a thing that this would be just for you. He reminded them of their vocation to be a light to the nations. You were called for a purpose beyond yourself, but Israel did not fulfill this calling, so God sent his own son to fulfill the original promise made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, to bless the world through Abram's offspring, which is what the opening line of the New Testament tells us Jesus is, quote, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. That's why it's there. It's to say the thread continues. But Jesus, he was crucified, dead and buried. Does the story have a dead end? No, Jesus was raised from the dead as a vindication that he was who he said he was, that this is the climax of the story and the beginning of the new chapter. The New Testament dares to say that Jesus is the clue to all history. And the story continues, Acts 1.8, is the Father who sent the Son, the Father and the Son, now send the Spirit. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And the story keeps unfolding. How will the story end? Well, when you want to know how a story ends, what do you do? You flip to the last page. And what does the last page of our story tell us? It tells us the story does not end with us individually being called up out of this world and leaving it behind. Rather, in Revelation 21, it ends with a city, the city of God adorned as a bride coming down. And this is so important, not us individually escaping up to it, but rather the city of God is coming down out of heaven to earth to renew all creation, to wipe away every tear, to right every wrong. Death and pain will be no more. But until that glorious day, God's story is still unfolding, and God has called a people centered, centered around his Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and sends us out to be his witnesses for the renewal of all creation, the mission of God for the glory of God in all the earth. That's what the Bible's all about. 
That's what the Bible's all about. You say, if that's true, why have I never heard this before? Well, because the mission of God will never make sense. It will just be what it's become in, in, for most of us. It will be just be just another program or committee unless we redefine and reimagine our understanding of church. I mean, think of it. The disciples didn't know what church was. All they knew 10 days later at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit did come upon them in power, that's the next chapter, Acts 2, all they knew was we're it. They were it. And that's why the church exists today, because those original disciples, men and women, who had been with Jesus, left behind what was comfortable and familiar into they knew not what. My point is, mission was not one thing among others that they did. It was the thing that Jesus charged them to do. His last words. Church. Today, I say peanut butter, you say jelly. I say church, and boy, that word has some baggage. Oh, we all know church attendance is dwindling. We know there's the growing movement of exvangelicals, people who grew up in church but have left it, in some cases have left church altogether, and we get it. We get it. I mean, it is so easy to have mixed feelings about the church or just to be plain cynical. I mean, let's be honest. Has any institution done more good? Hospitals, the civil rights movement, the abolition of slavery. But has any institution done more harm? Crusades, even in the news today, sex abuse scandals and covering up. One writer put it, never in the world have I seen anything more compromised and more false. Yet never have I touched anything more generous or more beautiful. I believe this is a crisis moment for the church. And like any crisis, this one presents an opportunity to reimagine church. I mean, I can't imagine a more important question for the church to be asking right now than what is church? Now, people have many responses to that question, but for most all of us, a subtle but dramatic shift has taken place. I mean, you can test this for yourselves, but ask most people, what is church? And they will respond with some derivation of, church is a place where, a place where certain things happen, a place where you go to worship, get spiritual, get motivated, get morals for the kids, make friends, find business contacts. Maybe find a suitable spouse. Get married. Get buried. The church is a place where you go to get the spiritual stuff you need. It's in our grammar, isn't it? Did you go to church last Sunday the same way you asked, did you go to the store? But here's my question. Does our image of the church correspond to the Bible's image? The word for church in Greek is ekklesia. It means assembly or gathering. 2,000 years ago, it was not a religious term. It could be used of any gathering, and in fact, it is in several places in the New Testament, just any gathering. The Greek word for church, ekklesia, comes from two Greek words, ek kaleo, ek meaning out of, and kaleo being the verb to call. So, ekklesia means to be called out of. So that's the original meaning of the word. Church was a gathering of called out ones. 
centered around the person of Christ. And in the sketch of the Bible's uh, thread that I sketched earlier, we saw that when God calls, He always calls with a purpose beyond the individual. With Abraham, with Moses, with the nation of Israel, with the prophets, so with the church. And that's what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, John 20, verse 21. I cited it earlier. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, even so I am sending you. That's the church. A people called by God, sent by Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. But do you see what's happened? Do you see what's happened? Did you hear it? A subtle shift has taken place with dramatic consequences. The church has moved away from from being a people who, and it has become a place where. It's become a place where. This is how one writer, Daryl Guter, put it. This place where orientation manifests itself in a particular form where both members and those outside the church expect the church to be a vendor of religious goods and services, a place where you go to get the spiritual stuff that you need. I mean, properly speaking, the church is not the building God's people happen to meet in, which is how we most often today use that word. This is an old church. Or where is that church? But the church is not the building. The church is the people who meet there. People don't enter a church. The church enters the building. And you say, well, this is semantics. No, no, no. This is not an insignificant semantic quibble. Something has shifted. And when you place this shift alongside a radical individualism that pervades our culture, iPhone, iPad, iWorld, radical individualism, alongside a pervasive consumerism, consumerism, you place those alongside what I mentioned earlier, this widespread misunderstanding of how to read the Bible is the story of the mission of God. And what, do you, what, do you, what are you left with? You're left with the wrong end of the binoculars. You're left with a very distorted vision of church. I mean, is it so surprising that consumerism has seeped into our churches? Let me prove it to you. When you move to a new city and you're looking for a church, what do we call it? Church shopping. Church shopping. And there it is. I mean, why is it that we get frustrated when the church does not meet our particular needs? We don't like the music or the lights or the sermon. But underneath that is the conviction that the the church or any church exists to meet my personal needs and preferences. And we'll shop till we find one we like. And if we get frustrated with it, we'll shop somewhere else. Subtle shift has taken place in our thinking away from a people who, called by God, sent by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be his witnesses, to represent the reign and rule of King Jesus, to be agents of the kingdom of God. It has shifted away from a people who to a place where, a place where I go to get my personal needs met on Sundays that it's convenient. I mean, I, I read a story a few years ago about a man in England. He found himself standing in a railway station near Burnmouth. He assumed he got there by train, but he could not remember where he was from. After wandering around, lost in the rain, 
he rang 999 from a telephone box in desperation. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, that's the day when my life began. The mystery man was taken by ambulance to a local hospital. He was physically fine, but he told the doctors, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I live. I don't know who I live with. Do I have a wife? Then began a nationwide appeal to identify the man who had arrived at a Dorset railway station, unable to remember even his own name. After photographs of this middle-aged man, dubbed Richard Nobody, appeared in newspapers all over Great Britain, he was finally recognized by an acquaintance who called the police. You say, wow, that is a tragic story. Well, I believe the American church is suffering from something sadder, that we too have forgotten who we are. The only difference is we've been wandering around for so long that we've forgotten that we don't even know who we are. We don't even know we don't even know. Is it so surprising that we have raised a generation of Christians who are solely looking to get their needs met? I didn't like the music today. Well, we weren't singing to you. (laughs) Rather, rather than looking for ways to join the mission of God in the renewal of all things. I mean, no wonder people are walking away. We have made the church something more distasteful than hypocritical. We've made it boring, optional, a voluntary club, a vendor of religious goods and services where local outposts compete against one another for shoppers rather than a people who have been called by God on mission, centered around Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have forgotten who we are. Has it ever struck you as absurd that that we do announcements for volunteers to volunteer an hour a month? I mean, what are we? We're centered around a man who gave his entire life that we might no longer live for ourselves. There should be a line of people saying, how can I serve? And yet we do announcements to volunteer an hour a month. We've forgotten who we are, a people who called on mission. Daryl Guter put it this way, the church of Jesus Christ is not the purpose or goal of the gospel, but rather its instrument and witness. Now, I nuance that. We're not only an instrument. The Bible calls us the beloved bride of Christ, But the point is, the church is not about us and our preferences. We are a people who have been called and sent to represent the reign of God in Evansville, Indiana. Do you know what the Bible calls us? Ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ with God making his appeal through us. To say, you can be reconciled to God just like me. And you need to be just like me. I mean, has this ever floored you that we are the church of God in Evansville? We are God's ambassadors? I mean, that it is a miracle that he chose us to represent him? When Paul writes the church at Corinth, he writes to the church of God in Corinth. Those followers of Christ just happen to live in Corinth. They constitute the church of God in that place. That the local church is the embodiment of God's people in a particular place. That we are like an embassy of the new society. An embassy of the new society that God's created in Christ. We are a foreign outpost. Just as the U.S. Embassy in London is considered part of U.S. sovereign territory in a foreign land, so the church is intended to be an outpost of the heavenly citizenship 
demonstrating what life lived under the rule and reign of King Jesus looks like. A demonstration community. You say, you lost me there. Where's that church? Where's that church? So I can leave this one and go to that one. Where's that church? But the fact that this seems impossible, incredible, not credible to us shows how much we've lost our bearings. Ecclesia called out to be sent out to make visible by our common life together, to be a foretaste of what life lived under the God of Jesus Christ looks like. That's what God calls the church to be, the gospel made visible. The gospel made visible. A community where hurting people can experience forgiveness and find compassion and grace. I mean, this should be the first community that broken people want to come to, like in those spy movies when someone is racing to get to the embassy because they want the rules of that country to apply to them instead of the country they're in. That's why we call this a sanctuary, a refuge, safety, healing. Is that us? I mean, let me ask it directly. Have we reduced the glorious invitation to being a part of the mission of God to renew all creation, empowered by His Holy Spirit? Have we reduced that to going to 314 Market Street and drinking coffee out of paper cups? Is this not absurd to anyone else? God's church has no walls. I mean, if you start to get this, if you start to get this, what is the church? If you begin to reimagine church, it will cause you to reimagine how you understand your work and the relationship of faith and work as you go into schools and hospitals, dental offices. That's another sermon. But it will change how you see uh, the church staff. They don't do the work of ministry. It's our job to equip you to be ministers of the gospel. Who are the ministers of this church? Everyone who is committed to the common life of the people here. That's another sermon. It will change how you see this Sunday gathering, not as an optional have to, but as a get to. Because we all know, just like Richard Nobody, we too are chronically prone to forget who we are. And so we gather to sing to sing and to hear God's word and to remember. It changes your expectation of, of why you're here. You start looking at this gathering, not, not what can I get out of today or I didn't care for the music, but that changes to who can I encourage today? Who needs a hug? Who needs someone to notice that I am dying? Who needs someone to ask? It will change how you see Evansville and your responsibility to this place where God has called you, renewing the city, not just spiritually, but culturally and socially. That's another sermon. Today, I'm just, I'm just wetting your imagination that there is so much more God intends for this church than we have ever heard or imagined. And I'm asking you to reframe, don't give up, reframe and re-engage. Now, there are so many metaphors for the church in the Bible, and the number tells you how important this is. It also tells you no one image can capture the full reality. I mean, there's God's household, there's living stones, there's a body with Christ as the head, there's 
uh, a new family with God as Father. But in closing, I'm just going to give you two pictures of the church, two pictures of the church to help reframe our reimagining, okay? First, the crucifixion. Now, <laughs> I've always thought the best image of the church in the Bible is the crucifixion. Jesus died between two criminals, two thieves. One admits his guilt. He knows he's a thief and he begs for mercy. Jesus, remember me. The other scorns his need, dismisses his need of a savior. But here's the thing. No one looking on could have discerned who was guilty and innocent. It's just one landscape. It's just one landscape, God hanging in the midst of thieves. God hanging in the midst of thieves. You know what that is? That's the church. Extravagant grace in the midst of bleeding people. Some who raise their hand and say, I need help, and some who deny it. But should we be surprised the church is a mixed bag? I mean, it was right there in the first church. The church has always looked just like it looked at the original crucifixion. God hung among thieves. But so he was. And here's the second image. Here's the second image. A beloved but unfaithful bride. A cherished spouse whom God not only will not give up on, but whom he promises to make beautiful without spot or wrinkle. A bride whom he engages with as clean and beautiful, even though God knows we're not. I mean, I so appreciate how the Apostle Paul engages with the church at Corinth I mentioned earlier, because it helps me so much avoid cynicism and resignation. It helps me when I feel like giving up. Paul planted the church at Corinth. He gave years to it in tears. But it was a mess. More than any church you've ever seen. Riven with division, stained with scandal. They were proud, immoral. <laughs> These people were fouled up at every turn. I mean, you'd expect Paul to be thoroughly demoralized. But watch how he opens his letter. Watch how he opens his letter by reminding the Corinthians, despite all their flaws and failures, who they yet still are. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. The church of God in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Now, he is clear-eyed that they are sinful men and women, and his letter is about to count the ways. But he calls them, did you hear it? Sanctified. We don't use that word today. But do you know what that word means? That means set apart as pure and holy. Set apart as Christ-like in God's sight because of their faith in Jesus. And so Paul, without minimizing, without minimizing what a mess this particular community is, goes on to say, this is verse 4, I always thank my God for you. I always thank my God for you because of the grace given in Christ Jesus. He is completely clear-eyed about their failings, but he is thoroughly hopeful and confident because of the grace given in Christ Jesus. Sam Albury puts it, they are a mess, but they are God's mess. And Paul knows that straightening out messes like this are something of a specialty for God. Now, in closing today, I just want to ask you to do something. I just want you to glance at the person next to you, to your left or right. Just indulge me for a moment. Just, just glance at them. I promise you this. I promise you, if you knew their story and what they had gone through, 
or what they are going through this very morning, unless you had a heart of stone, you would break down in tears. I promise you, you would. I promise you, you would. It is a miracle after what that person next to you has gone through that they're here this morning. Still trusting Jesus, still fighting the good fight, another Sunday, another week of God's grace. Because, I mean, who are we kidding? The only reason we'd gather here is our common need of God's mercy. That's the one thing we all have in common. Not our political affiliation or economic status or race. Our common need is for God's mercy. And none of us has any standing here except that mercy. But it's there. God hung among thieves. It's there in the cross. What a miracle that people like us could belong to him. Lesson Newbigin put it, the problem of how an unholy concourse of sinful men and women can be in truth the body of Christ is the same problem as how a sinful man can be at the same time accepted as a child of God. How is that possible? That is our good news. That is our story, that God sent us into the world. You shall be my witnesses, that we are completely loved, complete moral failures, all at the same time. I mean, I started the sermon talking about da Vinci, the great man who died thinking he was a failure. And we said that story is so tragic because it's still being played out that many of us are haunted by that same specter of never good enough. Never good enough. Well, tomorrow's Independence Day. You know what the gospel gives you? It gives you a privilege. And I tell you, this is a privilege that few people know and even fewer enjoy. The gospel gives us the privilege. It gives us the freedom to fail, to screw up, to make a perfect fool of yourself in front of the world and to let down even the people you love. And yet, in spite of it all, in spite of it all, to be loved and chosen called to be his witnesses, sent by our Lord, who knows what he's got, who knows who he's dealing with, empowers us with his Holy Spirit, and calls us to join him in the renewal of all things. That's what we get to be. That's what we get to be. Not a place where, but a people who, called by God, sent by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Men and women of Evansville, what are you looking at? He's coming back. So let's get out of this place and let's be the church. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, help us to be shaken. Help us to Acknowledge and recognize, Lord, that we have lost sight of who you are and what you've done for us and who you call us to be, witnesses, and that you've empowered us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to know what we have to give. A hurting and broken world is a story, a story of who Jesus is and what he's done for a person like me. And Lord, let this community be a sanctuary and refuge where broken and hurting people from all over this city might come and find help in a time of need. The God of grace.
Jesus Christ.